0: Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. For some, utopia is the chance at attaining a better life, if not a paradise filled with happiness and joy that gives life meaning, real meaning, meaning beyond the isolated, individualized rat race of hyper-consumption within which we find ourselves today. But to many, as our guest on this show today uh, reminds us any utopian experiment is often just too naive, too implausible, too irresponsible, too out there to work. Yet that sense of the impossible, if not the implausible, hasn't stopped countless attempts at building a utopian community, especially here in the United States. In our current world that insists there is no alternative... It would seem the pursuit of of a utopia is futile, but without that imagination, that hope for a better world and future, without that belief that, yes, another world is possible, it would be easy for us to believe that we are all trapped where we find ourselves today without an escape from what can be a very grim reality. Utopias can be an imagined way out of our current uh, death-dealing system, as our guest describes it. In that sense, utopia can be that revolution that we have all been waiting for. However, as history shows us, attempts at building utopian communities have failed, and whatever success they have had has often been fleeting, and the potential for the pursuit of utopia ending up in a uh, dystopia is, well, it's always there. The risk has seemed worth it to so many as they seek a more communal life, lived together without the isolation that so often is the Only thing that life seems to offer. In a few minutes, we will consider utopia, what it can be, what it has been, its failures, its successes, and the legacy of a long history of utopian communities in the U.S. when we speak with Adrian Shirk, author of Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia. Adrian's previous book is titled And Your Daughters Shall Prophecy, Stories from the Byways of American Women and Religion, which was named an NPR Best Book of 2017. Adrian teaches in Pratt Institute's BFA Creative Writing Program and lives at the Mutual Aid Society in the Catskill Mountains. You can find out more at Shirk, com and follow Adrian on Twitter at adrianshirk. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, Gaptooth radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Whipper. Uh Check out Sebastian's Seb's Soapbox on our YouTube channel, This Is Hell Radio 1996. Seb, what did you talk about on your most recent soapbox that was posted at YouTube? Uh, yeah,
1: on the most recent soapbox, I talk about uh, basically the history of gun rights, Um, you know, uh where things come from where the whole idea of individual gun rights uh come from how old that 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 decision that reading of the second amendment is where the second amendment comes from what the global sort of historical context was in which the second amendment was uh ratified. Um, there,
0: there's a great meme going around right now about how uh, the shooter in Uvalde uh, must have been a well-regulated militia for him to have the rights to own those guns. And uh, the point is, is that an individual is cannot be a well-regulated militia. It's right there in the Second Amendment and why that hasn't been considered in the past. Or maybe it has. Who knows? There's been so many You know, uh, court cases revolving around um, guns and gun ownership that may have come up in the past. Who knows? So that's Seb's Soapbox, which many of you may have heard while I was hospitalized and then recovering for the past two months. Again, you can find Seb's Soapbox on our YouTube channel. This is how Radio 1996. We're going to have some big news about the Soapbox in the very near future. So be tuning in for that. Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell? And do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question? Uh, yeah, this week's question from
1: hell is kind of related to the soapbox episode. Yes. It's almost like I'm. It's almost like I've, I've done both of these things. Um, <laughs> this week's question from question from hell is the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? The right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment?
0: Um, Let's do a couple now, and we'll couple. have a couple okay. later. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, d- 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 Chris C says Masturbation is an absolute right Anywhere, anytime, concealed under a raincoat Or out in the open in public spaces My right to masturbatory autonomy Will not be abridged
0: Oh Chris, oh Chris Thank you for starting off classy mm-hmm. this morning
1: uh, Chris H says Shooting heroin
0: <laughs> Jesus <laughs> All right, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. Wow, it really started out with a bang this morning. The This Is Hell t-shirt tote bag, the face covering and the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. And as during the time when I was hospitalized, we lost a couple dozen uh, Patreon subscribers. So uh, everybody out there, if you want to show your support for This Is Hell, it would be great if you subscribe to our Patreon podcast, which this week airs on Friday. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash This Is Hell Radio. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email This Is During This Show because it's our last show of the week, This Is Hell Radio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff warns against the party of Manson Family Values. Sebastian will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from Hell, firing our conversation with Adrian on Utopias. Again, the question from Hell is, the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? The right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? You can email us at at chuckatthisishell.com with your guest or topic suggestions as well, comments on the show, constructive or destructive criticism. And we'll likely share your thoughts on air. We received an email from listener Anthony T. that came with the subject line, Visiting Chicago, what's the deal with Carrie's Lounge and This Is House Studios? And before I read what Anthony had to say, Carrie's Lounge is spelled C-A-R-Y-S. We've had listeners tell us that they could not find Carrie's because they were looking for a place that was spelled as Anthony spells it at one point. Carrie C-A-R-E-Y-S, but that's not how it's spelled. There's no E. We've also had listeners say they could not find carries because they thought it was spelled K-E-R-R-Y-S, like the way that freak John Kerry spells his name. And still others thought we were talking about another nearby uh, tavern called Casey's. Again, Carries Lounge is spelled C-A-R-Y-S. Anthony writes, Hello, Chuck. I'm a long-time listener and first-time visitor to Chicago later this month of June. I'd like to drop by the studio and say hello. I don't know how welcome it is for listeners to just drop by or what the protocol for that is. Glad you're back on the air again. Solidarity, Anthony. Anthony and everyone listening. You are all more than welcome to drop by Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And if you do, we will gladly show you our studio, which is located on the second floor directly above the bar. And there's definitely no protocol or system of rules governing said visit to the bar or tour of our studios. However, for any out-of-town listeners who are visiting or planning on visiting Chicago, Please email me, as Anthony did, and tell us when you will be in town, and I will make certain to be over here when you are available during your visit. However, the most likely times that you will catch me over here are Wednesday evenings, as we hope to soon be returning to our regularly scheduled weekly meet-and-greet, which is more of a drink-and-think, this-is-hell office hours. In the very near future, we're hoping to return to those This Is Hell office hours. Of course, we had to suspend office hours for the past two and a half years due to the COVID-19 pandemic and due to the recent resurgence of the virus and its many variants, we have yet to restart office hours officially. And I'm still not certain we will be doing that until right around the time Anthony will be here later this month. On top of that, and also right around the time Anthony will be here later in June, I'm supposed to have yet another surgery, which will permanently address my ongoing health issues hopefully and will likely mean a few days in the hospital so please if you are going to be visiting us contact me at chuck at and we'll work out a way that we can meet up over here all that said i will definitely be here on saturday july 23rd for the celebration of carrie's lounge's 50th year in business that will include the opening of the this is hell sponsored this is art art show Featuring, as always, as it always does, art by listeners or suggested by listeners of This Is Hell. And if you have not already, put the This Is Hell 25th, 26th, sorry, 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and the closing of This Is Art on your calendar. It's all taking place the last Saturday of summer, Saturday, September 17th, during summer's final weekend. That's the This Is Hell 26th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, and the closing of This Is Art, featuring live music, food, and a raffle on Saturday, September 17th. If you are an artist or have an artist you would like to suggest having their work be a part of the This Is Art Art Show, email me again at chuckatthisishell.com, and please include a sample of your or their work. If you're a musician or would like to suggest a musical act to perform during the party, send your or their music or a link to a place where we can find said music at chuckatthisishell.com. And if you would like to donate something to be raffled off during the party, contact us, again, chuck at thisishell.com, or just send what you want to be raffled off to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Again, you can mail that to us, or you can just drop it by if you're here in the area. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd floor, Chicago, Illinois, Six zero six five nine. Coming up, utopian experiments in the United States. We will also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast, exclusively for subscribers at Patreon.com/slash. This is Hell. We'll be sharing more of your emails. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell. Jeff Dorchin will be delivering his moment of truth, and we'll be telling you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, this is hell. In fact, it could be argued that a society that puts people before profits is utopian, an outlandish idea that's far too idealistic for our late-stage capitalism, neoliberal reality in which we find ourselves today. Yet, that hasn't stopped the long and rich American history of seeking utopia, despite those pursuits so often ending in failure. Here to help us have a better understanding of utopia, its history, and what it may mean for us today, Adrian Shirk is author of Heaven is a Place on Earth Searching for an American Utopia. Welcome to This Is Hell, Adrian.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for being on our show. This is a fascinating topic. It actually kind of reminds me of a conversation we had years ago with Jody Dean about her book Comrade and the idea of the, uh, search, uh, reaching for the horizon of communism but never really getting there. The goal just always being trying to get to this idea that can never truly be attained. Is that what a utopia is, the constant search for a better life that the people who are involved know Can never be attained, that the goal is the search itself, not the acquisition, if you will, of a utopia?
2: I mean, I think so. Um, You know, the process of writing the book was also a process of trying to articulate, um, you know, or navigate what it was I believed or felt or thought about this material. And I think that, um, you know, by the end of that process, the things that felt really essential and worth taking seriously was not thinking about. Utopia as um, discrete physical um, experiments. That, that that those were not the apotheosis of the thing called utopia, um, but that you know utopia or utopian pursuits were more like a spiritual or um, you know philosophical um, you know movement that served as a kind of fuel um, or a type of very like active um, physicalized imagination, um, that put forth constantly, um, as a part of its central project, new possibilities and new ideas constantly about how to shift against oppressive imperial forces, um, or oppressive political forces or oppressive social forces of different kinds. And that, um, and that when I looked at this, you know, the, the, the huge variety of things that populated this history, um, what I became more interested in was the process that they engaged in. And the process um, was in some ways like the great legacy because any other experiment in that vein, um, you know, was often borrowing process, strategic philosophical principles that looked different over and over and over again. Um, and, and it became, I think most compelling to me, the whole, you know, history of utopian experimentation as kind of, you know what you're saying about Dean's book um, as a kind of horizon um, you know, that really serves as an engine for um really necessary um, and constantly uh, revisable social innovation
0: when it comes to that process, is uh, utopianism? is it, you come up with a theory and then you put it into practice, or is it a combination of theory and practice happening at the same time?
2: Well, it seems, um, you know, different for each, uh, each community. You know, the book kind of spans um, everything from like late 18th century experiments, like um bohemian manor and woman in the wilderness um and the shakers and um the early 19th century movements like the harmonists and the early kind of communal manifestation of the mormons and um and you know reaches to a lot of the um hippie commune movements of the 60s and early 70s that you know some of which had very common kind of political analyses or social analyses that united them. Some of them had um, really material, you know, common material needs that, that united them. Some of them had, you know, deeply um, spiritual or kind of innovative spiritual beliefs that, that united them. Um, so I really, you know, I think it varies a lot, um, but in terms of how any particular experiment would articulate its, you know, reason for being, Um, You know, in terms of whether it was starting with theory or praxis, but um, uh, I think what I find compelling when I look at, you know, this sort of late 18th century to the present, um, you know, idiosyncratic list of of examples I give in the book, um, what I see and what I find kind of inspiring about the totality of it is a um, Something that feels equally made up of theory and praxis, um, utopianism as something that is kind of uniquely um, embodying of both of those activities at once. Um, you know that, which is to say, um, you know, even in the more ideologically or theologically driven, you know, communal experiments. Um, the difference is that, you know, rather than perhaps like in a political sphere, rather than enacting um, a process of idea creation and then kind of um, waiting for it to to bear out or debating the idea to some form of um, ridiculous understanding of perfection before kind of letting it loose, um, the utopian, uh, I don't know, philosophical tradition seems to invite immediate forms of action, <laughs> um, immediate uh, manifestations you know the idea exists and then the thing goes into existence that there's something about actually not waiting um, you know not not sitting on ideas for a long time that feels like a hallmark of, of yeah of utopian like history.
0: And you point out that uh, when you started writing uh, uh, working on this book, Quote, I was 29 years old, and by the time I finished, I will be 32, a three-year period where my own responses to these basically rhetorical questions about utopianism would at once be fulfilled and rendered obsolete by the end of the process, which, like all books and all utopias for that matter, has no real end. That would seem then that the pursuit of uh, utopianism or a utopian community or utopian ideals is filled with a lot of uncertainty. So how precarious is a life in search of utopia? How much of a challenge is overcoming that uncertainty when for those who are seeking a utopia?
2: It is so wild to me the ways in which um, the production of this book has um Set me up for such enormous existential questions over and over again. Really wonderful questions, such as the one you just asked. I just had to pause and and um, and just sort of observe for a moment, like how frequently I am finding myself asking these, or excuse me, answering these 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 you know these enormous these enormous questions um, with some authority. So I always want to just kind of. Um, that in for a moment to, you know, to really highlight how deeply subjective this book is and also highlight uh, that in a lot of ways, the backbone of my my research and also the backbone of all of the research nonfiction that I write um, is always an autobiographical through line. So my life um, is, is a kind of raw material through which I am constantly, you know, developing and refracting um, my own obsessions and my own research through. Um, and so all that is to say, um, when I think about your, um, your question, I suppose, you know, that utopianism, um, is, (laughs) you know, is, is very kind of fundamentally about, uh, uncertainty and forms of uncertainty, um, and that in a lot of ways, uncertainty is its greatest, Um, virtue. Um, When I think about the kinds of, um, you know, political or social movements um, that, you know, bear out wonderful visions of the future um, or or, or a possible alternative present on paper, I can think of, you know, I can think of lots. Um, and, And then I think about, you know, how many of those movements or, you know, face kind of this terrible, some terrible period eventually of great disappointment um, and failure and defection. You know, I I actually, for some reason, have been thinking a lot about um, Vivian Gornick's book from the, I think the mid 1970s, The Romance of American Communism, where she goes um, kind of all over the United States to interview former members of um, the American Communist Party Um, in the kind of twilight um, or the aftermath rather of, you know, of their great disillusionment um, following, you know, all of the sort of revelations of, you know, violence and forms of state control that, that, that were becoming increasingly more visible in, in the countries that they had hinged you know, their kind of political vision on. And and I think about that book a lot because it's so, you know, she as well as the subjects are, there's this longing, there's this yearning, there's this great grief and sadness for, you know, for the great failure. And all of these people, all of her subjects have basically disengaged at that point from, you know, this amazing internationalist liberatory movement that they had devoted their, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of their life to prior to great the great disappointment and so um all that is to say something about the provisionality and uncertainty um of, of of utopian experiments of discrete kind of like communal or cooperative enterprises that have huge dreams and which work for a minute or a month or a year or 10 years and then kind of fall apart um i find very moving because in some ways you know what the what that suggests to me is a long arc is a long narrative is that you know nothing depends upon one particular um, activity or vision working out um, but that what is necessary is the constant um, the constant re-entering um, and willingness to re-enter that space of uncertainty and experiment um, and and in a way actually you know accept and learn to anticipate um, failure. <laughs>
0: And you write that as soon as I start relying on the word utopia, it becomes a misnomer, in part because it is a word often used as a jab to trivialize, to characterize a project that is too naive, too implausible, too irresponsible, too out there to work. If utopian projects so often fracture and fail, how much do utopian projects deserve that jab, that trivialization, and characterization as naive, implausible, irresponsible, and out there?
2: Well, in some ways... You know, again, just sort of drawing from the the line of thinking I was just riffing on. Um, you know, the the individual, um, you know, whimsy or folly or lack of organization or or fail failure to fully, you know, situate, you know, oneself or one's experiment in in the kind of like face of of reality. Um, you know, always seems to be. Focused in particular ways on like these very idiosyncratic movements, but, um, but then I turn my gaze to like all of the institutions and values and habits we've enshrined, you know, or accepted um, as necessary or permanent, you know, within, you know, whatever late, you know, stage capitalism, um, late imperial US American life and um, and I and I and I wonder, you know, who is the speaker of the, you know, in 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 this moment when we're thinking about, you know, what deserves to last, um, what longevity has to do with conveying value or meaning. I'm like the things that have longevity, my God, you know, horror, hell, like so many, so many horrific things, you know, have longevity and have been allowed to continue existing on the basis of being able to prove their longevity. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, I think, you know to some extent the opposite, which is it perhaps in fact the the essential flimsiness and, and unsustainability and lack of longevity in these experiments, you know, is in fact something worth, um, you know, adapting as as um, as a part of our metrics, as a part of our evaluative toolkits about how we, you know, what we decide um, is worth or or okay to tolerate um, in our world. You know, I think about like. And in a lot of ways, you know, where did this where did this um, book start for me? It started with um, actually just being in a really unsustainable life. I was living in New York City in my mid twenties, and I was taking care of um, my father in law, who was in his late fifties at the time and had suffered a series of strokes that um, that wiped out. I mean, his his the vast majority of his speech and mobility. Um, And my husband at the time and I were his primary caretakers for five years um, in this very, um, you know, immersive way. And part of what was happening was a completely, you know, an ordinary experience, an experience that like millions of people are subject to every day. Um, but we had no kind of fixed safety net, we had no healthcare system to rely on. So all of the, you know, care and, um, and systems, we were able to finally over time, um, you know, assemble housing um, and teams and, um, and various benefits Um for him and for his survival, you know, was such like a horrific education, like a real, a real drop into the inferno. And and at that moment, you know, I was adjuncting. I was working in a contingent capacity for the neoliberal university system, which depends entirely on contract labor. That is, for some reason, w twoed. I think because so much of the time, you know that prevents adjunct instructors from being able to collect unemployment benefits when they're not employed, you know, for four months out of the year by these institutions who they're paid pennies to teach students, who teenagers who are going into a serfdom lifetime level of debt to meet that underpaid adjunct in the classroom. And just there were all of these things that were just really put into sharp focus for me very quickly and I was like I don't know a way out of this and so the book became a way of collecting and massaging and building an imagination for myself of like how have you know people in my midst um you know for the last 250 years responded to um yeah just to the to the to these systems that are designed to destroy you and everyone you love. And and so that gathering, you know, the gathering of those stories, the situating of that history, um, the visions that it provided, um, you know, became a way for me to actually build and broaden my own imagination, my own critiques, you know, um, and face, yeah, and, and in a lot of ways, become a kind of fellow traveler with, um, yeah, with this with this history of um, of failure and experiment and and revision as no matter what a better alternative than accepting, um, you know, the, the the diabolical machine that you had been handed. And I don't, I am sorry, I lost the thread. I can't recall if this responded to your wonderful question.
0: It definitely did. So just to follow up on that, so uh, to what degree then do you think uh, the search for utopias or utopian communities are acts of desperation? Do we see more attempts at utopian communities and utopian ideas as the world becomes more and more desperate, whether that was in the mid-19th century or whether that's today?
2: You know... There's a lot of kind of just received wisdom in response to this question, or at least received patterns I guess of um, of studying and researching and in terms of just like the vast body of scholarship on these um, on these patterns of utopian innovation and I think on some part, yes, you know in the nineteenth century, um, especially during immediately during um, the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, medi- during Reconstruction, um, you see an enormous amount of um, activity that is an uh, utopian experimentation that is deeply, you know, in relationship to and in response to just the huge paradigmatic, you know, sh- consciousness shifts as well as just economic um, and moral, you know, crises um, that are facing that are beginning to kind of. Um, face the United States, but also kind of the West in general. I mean, the entire kind of, um, you know, global industrial capitalist system is that we, you know, that we are the heirs of is like really kind of coming into its, you know, coming into what it, <laughs> its full self. And so we see a lot um, of activity at those times. We see a lot of um, utopian activity, you know, following both World War I and World War II. Um, you know, each of these moments marking, again, a major paradigmatic shifts, um, or just, you know, stark realizations, um, both individually and personally, or excuse me, individually and collectively. Um, And we see, you know, utopian innovation emerge in the face of, you know, the sexual revolutions and, and economic upheavals that happened during those moments as well. So, yes, you know, it's, it's always tricky, because it's like, when are we not in crisis like when in the modern era like when since the late 18th century have we not you know have, have we not been in some kind of like major um major ethical crisis in which the entire globe is kind of you know implicated and forced to consider um you know consider not just their own experience, but the ways that the systems and the nations and the political machines that they live inside of are deeply contingent um, and uh, on and affecting, you know, many other mechanisms and machines all over the earth. So on some hand, you know, on, on, the, on the one hand, absolutely we see utopian innovation in response to these major kind of thresholds, often marked by not by war and the various um, you know, revolutions that those wars kind of um, inspire. Um, but I think we also just see, uh, you know, we also see it nonetheless as a continuous, a somewhat continuous activity. You know, you asked about desperation. I think that let's say specifically in the United States, we do see a huge uptick in, um you know in com- like com- the creation of communal enterprises and um, and communal um, utopian you know residential uh, locales when um, during major economic periods of economic depression so 1830s and 40s and uh, 19 you know late 19 the 30s and the 1940s um we see um, a lot, in fact, of utopian uptick right now, really just in the last 10 years, specifically among my own microgeneration of aging millennials, um, there's a, um, the, the Foundation of Intentional Communities, which is an organization based out of Yellow Springs, Ohio, for the last about 100 years. Um, kind of collects, has been collecting and indexing um, collective uh, and communal activity and communities um, for, you know, again, since the kind of early mid 20th century. Um, And they reported somewhat recently um, that the U.S. has seen um, an uptick of approximately 100,000 kind of new members who that organization recognizes as being a part of um, you know, communal enterprises or projects or intentional communities um, uh, in, the last, in the last decade. Um, and so I'm looking also at now as a, as a time of, you know, a particular kind of precarity that inspired much like these moments in the past. Um, again, a kind of desperation that actually supersedes ideological commitments of whatever kind Um, because, and I, and I do think that we, that we see some of the most, um, yeah, some of the highest numbers of participation when it is the case that most people actually just need to pool resources in order to survive, which, um, which is happening right now as well.
0: We are speaking with Adrian Shirk, author of Heaven is a Place on Earth searching for an American utopia. And yeah, that just makes me think about how uh, the precarity that we already lived within in late stage uh, capitalism, as well as neoliberalism prior to the pandemic, and then the additional precarity that we are living in under the pandemic. uh, It would seem almost contradictory that here we are in a situation where we're incredibly precarious. And so we rush to an idea of utopianism, which is a precarious idea in itself, which is just like, it's something that I was just thinking about as far as it being almost contradictory. You write that the United States begs specific kinds of questions about utopianism from its outset. How do we? Live together in a country founded on the idea, though not the practice, and was it even the idea, or is that revisionist too, of creating a society of coexistence and unity, personal liberty and religious freedom, populism and democracy, while profoundly and defensively violating those principles from the get-go. The settlers wiped out the worlds that were already here to make a new one. They enslaved people to bear out the... Labor of bringing about the new world. They stood on plinths and declared it good and free. And who is this they? I keep referring to white people, the founders and their henchmen and the descendants of their henchmen all the way down. We have still not reckoned with or rectified these violent contradictions and denials as a country in a meaningful way. And so the pursuit of a life that might be actually good and free had to continue somehow to unfold in thousands of ungovernable ways in this place where we said it was supposed to happen. And so every single time a community in the United States does or makes something utopian, something that was supposed to be impossible under the current paradigm, that had all rational forms of power stacked against it, but did the thing anyway. Little fissures form in the veneer of imperial control that reveal the current uh, real freedom that runs hotly beneath it. So is the freedom offered by utopias, is that in a sense anti-American? That is in opposition to what the U.S. is in practice, but not necessarily in theory. Do utopias in the United States... Challenge the U.S. to live up to its promises and coexist of coexistence and unity, personal liberty, and religious freedom. Populism and democracy, leading to them not just being dismissed, but even feared as a revolution, as you were just saying.
2: Yeah, um, I think that <laughs> um, on some level, you know, all of these experiments that reveal, you know, again the 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 fissures in the veneer of imperial control as being you know as being in in some way actually you know not omniscient not permanent not in fact the way you know or a reflection of what reality has to be understood or tolerated through um, that each of these experiments that reveal what I, you know, what you were just saying, this the the real the current of real freedom that runs hotly beneath it, you know, is a is a freedom that is certainly does not belong to um, a U.S. American, you know, history or paradigm. Um, you know, I think in that moment, thinking about that moment in the book, you know, is 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 a place where I where I'm you know, actually really like understanding, you know, freedom and the utopian experiments that try to sort of probe the edges of what that might mean, you know, as like a deeply spiritual um, posture as a you know, and, and, in, and in its kind of spiritual vision um, as, as a kind of essential good, um, you know, it, it has the capacity to kind of look and imagine and expect something beyond um, you know, the sort of forces of evil that um, hem in, uh, you know, and, and, and so violence in the lives of them and, um, and their country people, um, which is to say, um, I do think that, um, so I'm, you know, I do think that these, these communities and these experiments do to some extent, and, and, and often have very consciously acted as a kind of corrective, um, or a um, a response um, to the specific promises made by um, you know the the American identity or the American political establishment um, or the or the American story of what of, of what what here is supposed to be. Um, but in some ways, like is neither here nor there because you know because the act the vision of these of these experiments, you know, goes far beyond a nation, you know, like in a lot of ways, the minute you start um, thinking about or living inside the logic of a utopian experiment, you know, you're, you know, the whole structure or idea of nation building at all, even nation building with explicit kind of utopian dreams and terms such as, you know, the white patriarchs of the um, Anglo elite, tried to um, articulate in terms of their vision for this particular nation um, you know e- as utopian as those hopes were just that the the project of nation building is so is so rotten from the outset. Um, so I don't know you know is that their function? I hope not. Is their function to like correct you know the. the, the US American um, you know failure to live up to its, to, to live up to its promises. Like, of course it will it has failed to live up to its promises. The very structure, you know, creates, it makes it impossible for, for such wonderful um visions or dreams as stated to happen. But I think of things as you know, rangy as let's say. You know, the Shakers, which is just a very, you know, famous, quite expansive and long lasting American utopian movement that really goes from the late 18th century up until today. There's like one community left up in Maine, um, but it had its, you know, largest, biggest life in the US in the 19th century, and, uh, it really through the early mid 20th century. Um, And that was a deeply, you know, spiritual movement led by um, a a prophetess, Anne Lee, you know, who assembled, you know, through a variety of kind of mystical visions, you know, a theology of total egalitarianism, the production of beauty, um, communal living, Complete celibacy, um, uh, but also complete—you uh, know—shared kind of existence and shared practices and shared responsibilities between genders in these, you know, this repeating structure of these cooperative agrarian farms and communities all over the United States. Um, also these elaborate you know ecstatic feral worship practices you know so the, there was this like great joyful kind of almost you know erotic spiritual life that these very somber um you know uh, shakers had you know their life was very steeped in like very physicalized um you know, whirling, loud. You know, um, embodied spiritual practice, and what they were, you know, orienting themselves toward. You know, through the sort of perfection of a kind of, you know, uh, you know, ever expanding pods of perfectly assembled kind of communal existence was, you know, was a was a was a vision, in fact, of you know of what they. Understood the afterlife to be, and that in their pursuit of perfecting it, you know, they would sort of close the gap between, you know, the 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 millennium, right, the 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 end of the world and the world that they lived in, you know, an, a, a way of actually sort of bringing, you know, the afterlife, you know, pulling the afterlife toward themselves, so that you know they would become indistinguishable. It was a really unique theology, you know and um you know and so like they had no you know they had no particular aims for you know delivering or perfecting you know the political you know world that they lived under in the united states um but they also offered you know you know ways of living and ways of being and agrarian practices and and even like social and political you know ideas or inspiration that did you know end up actually deeply mattering and deeply affecting and deeply changing and forming the way that generations of um, of social thought you know actually unfolded it didn't require their intention you know and i can think of places you know i think of let's say in the 1970s you have the emergence of soul city um, in the mountains of north carolina um, you know a black-led um but multiracial um new city city of tomorrow being developed in what was at the time um clan country about an hour outside of of raleigh and um and there was so much there was actually so much state and federal support from hud at the time um and it was led by um some who were at the time kind of veterans of the civil rights movement, who had a lot of political and social power, and you know, for ten years, you know, developed this kind of extraordinary. Um, new city actually physically that would not be a commuter city but a city wherein the residents actually lived and worked and educated their kids and it would be the leadership would be black but the there would be a real effort and and an active interest to create a kind of unique multiracial and sort of multi multi multi-class um community um and actually were able to to build a lot of this, and they understood themselves very actively as a corrective to the horrors of, you know, of, of the America that they had inherited, and they, you know, and and they were, uh, you know, deeply sabotaged um, by the various paradigmatic and administrative shifts that happened. Um, you know, over the course of their first decade of attempt, such that by the late 70s, early 80s, um, they had been all but, enti- you know, <laughs> all but completely dismantled by this wave of just, you know, conservative, um, conservative diabolism <laughs> sweeping across the nation at that moment. And so, you know, I think of that and and I'm like, you know, I uh, there's so much about that project that's like totally amazing, and it's utopian, and then its vision was massive, and was a corrective, and was you know about actually practically resolving issues at the time, but also like resolving you know deep you know spiritual wounds that you know wrought by the structures of this country, um, and I think the more visible that these things are as correctives, the more likely they are to be actively destroyed, um, such that the site that Seoul City, the very dregs and vestiges of Seoul City today sits on is now a medium security prison that was constructed in the late 90s um, that actually usurped land from what used to belong to the Seoul City tract. And, um, and that, fact, you know, feels very coordinated and violent um, and known by the state of North Carolina. all the decisions that, that, that were made going into that. And so you know, you know, I, I guess I'm talking about this because I, I feel like there's often a false binary where like the weirdo, groovy spiritual utopian experiments are kind of regarded as like, you know, a sort of self-contained closed circuit. Uh, you know, uh, passive, uh, you know, receding from society that has no real effect. And then, you know, and then they're, you know, and they're distinct from, you know, the movements or the experiments that are actively, you know, speaking to the current power structures and engaging with them and trying to use the, you know, the tools of those structures to actually implement change, you know, and that one is realistic and one is not realistic, or that one has real lasting power and one does not. But what I find when I look at, you know this history as like a huge melange is that you know they all matter profoundly um and and that the ones that understand themselves as 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 correctives more explicitly are way more vulnerable to terrible destruction
0: You mentioned Joseph Smith's and the Mormon's desire to live against the grain of atomization and in community, which kind of looked like uh, how the Harmonists had been living. And you add true communal living was what separated the wheat from the chaff when it came down to the early Mormon. Is that the common thread through the utopian communities you studied, an attempt at true communal living that could not be found elsewhere in the United States, or is are they just responses to a reaction to violence? Whether that's violence by the state or violence by uh, your surrounding community or violence the violence of capitalism.
2: When I think about at this point, you know the wh- how I would define you know utopian um, pursuit. Um, you know I think often to this line in the book where I sort of reduce it somewhat in a somewhat flip way to something that was supposed to be impossible under the current paradigm something that according to the laws of capital and conquest that it lived under just should not have been able to happen but did anyway and and so I and I I rest on that a lot because um I think it would be Um, a mistake for myself or anyone to conflate um, communes or, um, or intentional communities as kind of metonyms or um, representatives of what this word or this, you know, this, this kind of philosophical tradition, um, you know, means, Um, because I'm like, you know, these are certainly like very common expressions um, or communal enterprises or cooperative enterprises are very common expressions, but they can't possibly be, you know, um, a kind of metonymic (laughs) representation of of what this word or this tradition means. And so when I think about that, you know, I I then go, well, why why are these movements like so often deeply communal or driven towards communal enterprise? And in part, you know, as you were saying, you know, partly as a practical necessity, um, because if utopianism is essentially, you know, is a tradition that emerges out of violent empire, you know, would not exist, would not need to exist um, would not need to exist as a tradition, would not understand itself that way, unless there was something, you know, to fight, to push against, to shift against, um, you know, then, yeah, then I, I imagine that, you know, communality and collective power, collective resources, you know, is just always a necessity, not because communality is utopian or utopia but because it's it seems that collectivity is always necessity in some form in order to um address or experiment or innovate against um yeah against the you know the 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 iron fist of of imperialism in whatever form it's appearing to you at that time um and so I don't know that you know. I, I know that it's it's a very crucial and essential element. You know, again, sort of structurally. Um, and again, you know, a lot of these communities also place a deep, you know, have deep political um, ideologies or theological beliefs um, that that also frame and, and imbue meaning into their relationship to to the collective um, or to the value of communal living. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's no single definition of it, but, um, but yeah, I, I think of, I guess I think of communal elements of all of these things as being kind of at, at, at the very least, just like a practical necessity, um, whether it's an, a residential, you know, again, kind of colony or commune or a, you know, cooperative, um, you know, community space or a volunteer run, you know, community garden or shelter for um, survivors of domestic abuse or um, a city, you know, built for a vision of the United States that will never, ever (laughs) come to pass under using those tools um, or, you know, a rural hippie farm for five years in, you know, from the 1960s to the early 1970s, um, you know, where everyone kind of, experimented living into their hopes and beliefs and dreams for what their lives in the world could be like before you know getting too tired or running out of money or um, you know realizing that no one was actually prepared to become the people they hoped they could. Um, you know, communality is an essential element, but it's not to be made an idol of for itself, at least in the context of American utopianism.
0: You mentioned visiting a variety of different uh, communes, but also uh, past communal sites. You were, at one point, you write about visiting a plot of land, a farm perched above the south shore of Sodus Bay, Lake Ontario, Alaska Farms. Alaska Farms is a public land trust and the current home of Crackerbox Palace, a nonprofit organization that leases the 627 acres to a run a sanctuary for abused and neglected farm animals. There's evidence of permanent dwellings on this uh, parcel. Going back to the end of the Ice Age, the Seneca Indians were here then and are here now. Before settler colonialism and broken treaties, they'd rest in a stand of sycamores alongside the lake during their summer fishing trips, then migrate back to their more temperate homes due south. Then the European colonists came in the mid 18th century and for the first time in human history, privatized this piece of property for agriculture, but those crops failed, and in the early 19th century, the Shakers moved onto the same land, followers of Mother Anne, who was believed to be the incarnation of Christ's second coming. So are, are, are all these efforts at finding utopias, are they about trying to find a utopia that predated colonialism, attempts at creating what utopian communities may believe accurately or not, that prior to colonialism, the area of what it was and what it had been in an indigenous time is are these all attempts at do these kind of experiments happen in the United States because there is this belief that there was a utopia before and because we had this promise of a new utopia?
2: Yeah, well. Um, This is again one of those wild crossroads I often find myself in these days where I'm like who has empowered me to be the (laughs) authority and authority on this question and I'm like I did this I set myself up and so I will speak from this um, from from at least how I um, came to understand that question um, as I worked with the book on one hand you know, I think there's a tremendous amount of, you know, so-called American utopian experiments over the last 250 years, um, that were absolutely fixing their gaze on a kind of idealized, and in some cases, appropriative, you know, fantasy, you know, of what not only, you know, American indigenous, um, communities and life might have looked like or felt like, um, Uh, And and in a lot of ways, especially in like the 20th century, you know, taking great efforts to sort of, you know, in these deeply white 1960s and 70s hippie communes, um, you know, kind of reenact or reimagine that. Um, And so there's that. I also think that there's a lot of you know a lot of experiments populating, again, the two hundred and fifty years of the American landscape that were made up of people longing for their own, you know, their own indigenous culture that they had been, you know, wrested from or had lost um, you know in other parts of the world and that were in some ways pursuing or reimagining or trying to reconstitute even generations later, you know a fantasy or an idea you know, of what their own, you know, their own histories, indigeneity, you know, looked like, what that, what their own kind of now out of reach folk culture for themselves looked like, you know, what their, what their agrarian ancestors' lives looked like. And, um, and so that is always, I think that was, that was always off and on, like deeply present and formative in the ways that people were imagining their responses to outliving, empire. I do not think, though, um, that that is a fundamental or essential, um, you know, element of what the kind of totality of a utopian philosophical lineage might mean, kind of in the way that it always feels a little risky to me to make a metonym of commune and utopia, it also always, you um, Feels risky to me to to imagine utopianism as uh, being uh, the reclamation of something believed to be original or old or pre X, right? Pre imperialism, pre colonization. Um, why? Because because the the posture of understanding uh, oneself to be creating something old or original is often based on something we have no actual relationship with or, or reach for it. Ha- and it seems to have a lot more to do with the kind of accumulation or the, an attempt at like stability and accumulation of, of resources and a fixing of identity. Um, and that to me seems very anti-utopian because if utopianism is essentially a response to you know, the advent of violent empires, um, then what it includes is a kind of relationship, an imaginative relationship, both to the past and to the future. And recombining and mixing those things in ways that produces activities and shapes and forms um, of collectivity that ideally we've never even seen before um and so when I think about for instance a loss of farms and in light of the passage that you just read from what I find really moving about that particular site is that after after the shakers moved on to that that piece of land um the foyerists a groovy kind of almost sci-fi futurist secular French um utopian community that created these like Wild uh, 1600, you know, a person phalanxes that that were closed circuit like, you know, education and labor and uh, and 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 leisure and totally egalitarian of the egalitarian, um, you know, racially and 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 into gender and, you know, this was the dream. That they would just create these spaces over and over and over again until the world was made up solely of only that. (laughs) And instead, the Foyerists came to the United States and made about 49, you know, really raggedy, wild attempts to fulfill that vision, each of which, each of them having like spectacular kind of dissolution and and ends, including the one that uh, took place on the um, site of a loss of farms that eventually fell apart a year and a half in due to disagreements about vegetarianism. Um, and after that, that site of that land is bought by a wealthy lawyer whose home is used as um, a, a an important stopping ground and sanctuary during um, and on the Underground Railroad to, um, to, the, to the Midwest. And um, and there's a bunch of, oh, and then after that, it becomes a model farm of tomorrow during the depression, helping um, uh, people, the, a state funded place that was designed to kind of help uh, uh, develop and support um, agricultural innovation and technology um, and for, you know, suffering rural um agrarian Americans at the time and um so it had this like wild really interesting you know use it 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 saw all of these different kinds of uses and by the time I got there this piece of land was a home for as you mentioned abused and neglected farm animals who almost never get to live their lives to full maturity because of the nature in which you know livestock animals are primarily used and within the way that their reproduction takes place in the united states but here were here were all of these abused and neglected animals who were going to live and and in in ways that were you know largely unknown to (laughs) to their brethren you know sheep and 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 you know turkeys and i was like and and uh what else are there and pigs and you know all these animals that were gonna live for a really long time and we're gonna possess in that way actually an experience on earth that was that was at that point you know somewhat unique and who had been produced really only to provide profit but who were now providing no profit because they lived on this piece of land that is operated as a part of a community land trust, um, and that was entirely run and aided by volunteer labor. And I thought, you know, in this piece of land that saw so many different kinds of, you know, utopian innovation, each of which different from the last, and and none of which lasted, and none of which are about, you know, God willing, at least not successful in in fixing or making permanent their you know their um, you know narrow imaginings or fantasies of what the what an original form of life might be. Here we have this like amazing kind of futurist vision that this land is now you know the inheritor of with all of these you know you know thirty year old use.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty amazing part of your book. We have been speaking with Adrian Shirk, author of Heaven is a Place on Earth Searching for an American Utopia. And as you you were saying at the beginning of our conversation today, that one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is how it does lead to – and. It, the thing that I enjoy doing the most on the show, and that is asking and writing big existential questions. So I really enjoyed that about your book. You can find out more about Adrian at adrianshirk dot com, and you can follow Adrian on Twitter at adrianshirk. One last question for you, Adrian, and we promise that we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that all movements that are truly pure of heart will die quickly and return to the compost heap and show up later in the soil of society in some other form. The most successful communities will not even leave a trace, and you will never hear of them nor read about them in books, and you will walk on the land where something good tried to happen once, and you will not know that anything happened there at all. So is utopianism then, especially in the United States, futile?
2: <laughs> um, is it futile? I think a utopian posture, a utopian imagination um, and the maintenance of that, both individually and collectively, um, is is necessary and and happening all the time, and so the question of its futility is sort of moot. I'm like that is just that has just been happening, and it's happening all around you right now, regardless of what you label it as. It is happening when you participate in any kind of like volunteer run you know, autonomous activity for which no one is making profit and no money is going in to support it. It is happening, you know, it is happening all the time. Um, uh, I do, I think that like the particular form of creating uh, kind of, you know, permanent communal uh, encampments, uh, is that futile? Uh, Yes, but that's because anything that hinges an idea upon arrival or permanence is futile. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, there's a happy note to end a question from hell. Thank you so much for being on our show, Adrian. I really appreciate the conversation and your book is really fascinating. Like I said, it really does make you think about big existential questions. So again, Adrian Shirk, author of Heaven is a Place on Earth Searching for an American Utopia. Thank you so much for being on, uh, on our show and enjoy the rest of your week.
2: Thank you so much, Chuck, and thank you so much. This is hell.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Live in the United States where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. Sebastian, why don't you uh, remind us what is this week's question, Mel, and give us maybe a couple more responses if we have more responses from our listeners, and then we'll get to Jeffy. Uh, Well, we do have more responses for
1: this week's question from Hell, which is, uh, The right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? Um, And there has been a a little bit of controversy going on in uh, our Facebook comments because David I. says, None, and hobbies into the Constitution is rightfully the provenance of the American right and should remain that way. They even pour scads of dark money in into the practice and hire lawyers and consultants to further uh, their vapid pastimes. They call this their hobby lobby, and I'm like, <laughs> yes, that is exactly the point why I why I made this question. Um, and then Rob S replies, and now you've gone and made me feel bad about wanting to say euchre. <laughs>
0: I, what, what, I don't know what that is. It's a card game. Okay. And being from Michigan as somebody else as Ronaldo yeah, says yeah yeah big thing in Michigan
1: uh, but I'll say it in anyway euchre uh, you get to fight for your right to Trump to Trump it's part of <laughs> a big part of the game uh, and then uh, David I replies Euchre is properly this uh, is properly a state's right issue a state's rights issue <laughs> that's That is why it is already enshrined in the Michigan Constitution, is it not? And then our own Ronaldo replies, I grew up in Michigan and never learned to play Euchre. Uh, Learning to spell it was hard enough. (laughs) Learning none of the, uh, because none of the people who wanted to teach the game uh, to me could spell it either. Uh, And I couldn't look it up because I had no no idea that it started with the letter E. So
0: the hell with Euchre. (laughs) <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, let's get to Jeffy. Let's do okay, that. Okay,
1: uh, wait a minute. Let me see if he is... There he is. Yeah, well, I now I do have him actually on the line. So, yeah. Yeah, let's go to Jeffy. So,
0: live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and I know you have Jeffy on the line now. What?
3: Of truth, the moment of Manson Family Values. This is Jeff reporting from a Hollywood construction site, Dorchen, with the moment of truth. The hypothesis I'm about, <coughs> the hypothesis, I'm about to unveil, would require more research than I'm willing to do, and might be impossible to address, even if I had the diligence required. What if violence among humans remains at a constant level, statistically, but with shifting loci of activities? Hear me out, not because I think this is a worthwhile idea, but because I would like to understand myself what I'm talking about. Let's see. I'm wondering about violence. Is it a constant of human existence? I mean, in a group of, say, N hundred thousand people, is there always one who's a mass murderer? Mm, No, that's not it. In any complex aggregation of complex groups of people... No, wait. Let's define our term. No, let's not. Forget that, I can already tell I'm not onto something there. What if there's a trade-off between different kinds of violence and we have to put up with the lunatic mass shootings so that we don't get the ethnic cleansing massacres, etc, that other countries have? Nope. That makes no sense either. There's no deterministic human constant of violence. There's no part of human nature that guarantees violence and while I don't believe by a long shot that we're living in the least violent era ever or that there has been steady progress toward a more peaceful civilization. I also don't believe violence is an inevitable outcome of a certain number of people, or a certain number and level of mixture of beliefs or ethnicities, sharing a given area of land or amount of resources that derives a quotient of violence. It does seem evident to me, though, that a large population can only tolerate being lied to by its own in class, to a certain degree of illogic pettiness, popular divisiveness, and implausibility before those lies produce resentment and violence. And when a deeply held belief, like the moral inferiority of a group within that population, is habitually used throughout a nation's history to scapegoat that group for problems that are the unadmitted fault of the owning class in a drastically unequal society, Some form of violent persecution seems historically to be an inevitable outcome. The U.S. owning class has historically resorted to blaming black people and those who argue for redistributive solutions to inequality for white people's problems. The fact that there are black people who've moved into the owning class hasn't altered that argument, nor the trend of persecuting the people remaining on the wrong end of inequality, regardless of the large number of them who are white or otherwise non-black. It was the great American himself, Charles Manson, who eventually turned his eponymous family into a murderous doomsday cult under the belief that the apocalypse would be heralded by a war between black people and white people. Today this doomsday cult has spread all across the nation and while the current doomsday preppers and white nationalists second civil war scenarios differ with Manson on the details, no one can doubt now that the right in 2022 is united under Manson family values probably the most reasonable Tucker Carlson believer I've ever conversed with, or I've conversed with this year, and I don't need to tell you that's a low bar of rationality, has also espoused these two beliefs. Black people's attitudes and behavior toward the police are the cause of their problems with the police and the justice system, and the real revolution against the powerful is gonna come from the populist movement on the right. When Tucker and other right-wing entertainers talk about replacement or the terrible dangers wokeness poses to the stability of the traditional American family or advocate for more, not less, money and military equipment for police or claim that teaching critical race theory in schools race theory in schools a phenomenon they invented out of thin air Causes white people to hate themselves and non white people to disrespect their betters, they're proclaiming Manson family values. And when regular working people or small business owners or large business owners or lawyers or doctors or any of your neighbors badmouth union power, communal ownership, restorative justice, distributive economics, and a broadening of civil rights, they're advocating for Manson family values, whether they're aware of it or not. That might sound like a stretch. If workers reject unionization and vote for candidates who push so-called right-to-work legislation, how is that supporting Manson Family Values? Let's pose a counter-query. In a society where we're supposed to be free to congregate and free to speak our minds to power, how is banning collective bargaining for wages and benefits even legal? How Orwellian is it when banning the right to collectively bargain is called a right to work? That's analogous to labeling slavery the right to pick cotton. Don't you want the right to live in chains? The Emancipation Emancipation Proclamation is trying to take away your chains. You'll have to make choices. You'll have to buy or rent property, farm it without the motivation of being whipped, pay taxes on the value you create, and vote for how those funds are used in the community. You don't want all that responsibility and if you do I'm afraid we're just gonna have to massacre you and destroy your black wall streets and such you're asking for a race war or in the case of the original example a class war and the class with the money will win so don't even try it sunshine If your conservative uncle argues that abortion is murder, how is that related to Manson family values? Well, along with his arguments, undoubtedly come assumptions about the motivation of abortion advocates, which bleed into his assumptions about why liberals advocate for women's rights at all, which lead to ideas of the sanctity of the traditional American family, which lead to all the ways liberalism is undermining that sanctity, including by destabilizing the structure of the black family, which helps breed bad attitudes toward police, which leads to the necessity of police heavy-handedness and the overrepresentation of black people in the prison system, and in morgues, which leads inevitably to fears about the coming race war and why your uncle has purchased a high-capacity magazine assault weapon and why he has so many institutional sized cans of tuna in his bunker. MFV Manson family values why are they trying to force teachers to teach our children MFV in schools why are they preaching MFV on Fox News Newsmax and AM talk radio why is the GOP trying to make an MFV view of the history of the uh, view of history the law of the land can't they see how MFV leads to ideologically driven mass murder the possibility of the real revolution against the powerful? coming from the populist movement on the right is horrifying. It should horrify anyone with a historical memory. It's horrifying because Manson family values lead directly to genocide. Manson family values are destroying this country. Manson family values keep our peacetime gun violence statistics higher than those of any other nation. We have to train ourselves to recognize Manson family values. We have to learn to call out Manson family values when they're being hammered from the perfidious pulpits of pundits and politicians. We have to learn to describe it to others so they can Recognize and call it out as well. We have to shame it. We have to reveal it as the embarrassment that it is We have to drive it back to the incubators where it came from and bury those incubators under the weight of history It's time to win history ourselves Not succumb to those who would steal it from us Our goal must be to grow workers and poor people's power by shrinking the reach of Manson family values This has been the moment of truth Good day.
0: All right, Jeffy. I went over on a couple of interviews this week, so we're up against okay. the clock.
3: We All have right. to do one thing, though. We have to clear up the dates of the celebrations this summer because you said September 23rd was the Carrie celebration, but, which no, it can't so,
0: be. July 23rd is the Kerry celebration. September 17th is our anniversary party.
3: Perfect. That clears out my calendar.
0: <laughs> right, there you go. Sorry about that if I got that wrong earlier. All right, Jeffy. Stay beautiful. You too. Thank you. Bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and give us the rest of our listeners' answers.
1: Uh, Okay, I'll try not to stumble over my own words uh, due to to time pressure. Uh, This week's (laughs) question from hell... Is uh, the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? Um, Where were we? Where did we leave? David oh, so uh, yes. I. Yes, David I. Ronaldo. Uh, our own Ronaldo also says uh, uh, to ask questions that make people uncomfortable. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matt H. says walking and running right down the middle of the goddamn street. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, Matt, Matt, H. H. Matt, uh, Matt H. Okay. <laughs> Um, then uh, Nick E. has two But I'm, I'm selecting the the better one um, <laughs> Punching down should be enshrined in the constitution It was implied
0: from the get-go Let's make it explicit Yeah, I like that one mm-hmm. Nick E. punching down
1: uh, And then let's go to uh, the Twitter um, On uh, the Twitter uh, Bish, Bishkek history says Quartering troops <laughs> right. I mean, if, that, if it's like no shame here. That's your hobby. <laughs> um, that is an odd hobby. Mm, uh, this is, yeah, uh, and then uh, our our friend of the show uh, eats eat farts. Sixty nine says uh, as many sauces one desires with their go to orders <laughs> at no extra cost. <laughs> I I, I I feel like there is a conspiracy against me by Popeyes because whenever I order Popeyes um to like to as delivery and um order like and go nuts on the sauces yeah. they
0: don't give me any <laughs> That'll happen. It's like uh, making sure that you get raita from a Indian restaurant. They mm. always try to hold back on it when mm. you want more. Uh
1: Frank Luelmo says uh, the right to genetic to a genetically engineered cat no the right to genetically engineered cat ears and foxtails. <laughs>
0: Who said that?
1: Uh, Frack Lou Elmo. <laughs> okay. Uh, Greg Rossmeyer says, "ICBM." I, I, I mean, amateur rocket build. <laughs> um, hypocrite, hypocrite reader posted. Uh, 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 I, I keep forgetting what, what the show was called. It's like a British comedy show with the Are uh, We the Baddies? Um, do you know what I mean. Um, yeah, okay. uh, the Beastie Boys fought and possibly died from my right to party. So. No. Um. Then Dan Col- uh, Dan Colbert says nitpicking. <laughs> uh, Gregory Knapp uh posts a picture of the movie The Hunt, where uh, rich people are hunted for sport for sport, um, and asks if we have seen that. So I guess he implies hunting rich people for sport. <laughs> okay. Um, Chris Chris Kozak says a crowdsourced guillotine design. All right. right. Mm-hmm uh kelsey says taking money from the rich to give to the poor um and that will be called the robin hood amendment all right uh and then zach r uh, zach randall uh who has promoting our show on twitter like crazy which is uh hats off to you uh, thank uh, you zach yeah uh producing and viewing pornography (laughs) um by which we should also also add that that is his job. I mean, not <laughs> his per, hobby. But, no, not his hobby. That's his job. That's true. Yeah. Um, but right. anyway. Uh, <laughs> wow. No, no judgment. I mean. Yeah. Just, not from us here. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yes. And then there is the one thing that uh, you sent me by email uh, where – what's his name? Uh, Rick M. says, uh, the rights to marinate shall not be infringed.
0: <laughs> the right to marinate. Okay, so the answer is I like the most where I did like Nick E. saying – Punching down uh, Ronaldo, saying To ask questions That make people Uncomfortable uh, But of course Ronaldo's is uh, On staff here So he can't win The question from hell uh, Chris, says, uh, Chris C. Saying uh, Masturbation uh, Neil C. Saying Punching Nazis Bruce B. Saying Witchcraft Cheryl W. saying to have sex just for fun. Not even kidding. Bradley R., the right of the people to alter or abolish the government. That's only in the Declaration of Independence, so he wants to see that put into the Constitution. And Steve C. saying looting. And i got to say, my favorite answer to this week's question from hell... Um, I'm going to go with Cheryl W. saying to have sex just for fun. That is the hobby that she would like to have enshrined in the Constitution. And I think that that should definitely be enshrined in the Constitution, although we already do have a right to assembly in in the sense isn't having sex for fun a kind of. Assembly. So congratulations to Cheryl W. You are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is just send us uh, which piece of merchandise you would like that you can find right now at thisishell.com and click on support and send us your mailing address and we'll get it into the mail to you post haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, the right to which hobby do you want to see enshrined in a constitutional amendment? Uh, My answer is pretty straightforward and that is the right to be... uh, Tripping balls. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answer to this week's question from hell. Also, thanks to uh, this week's producers, Dan Hill, Lindsey Gorey, Sebastian Vooper, and as always, Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Jeff for another moment of truth and Ronaldo for the, this week in Rotten History. Thanks to Theron humiston and Richard Norwood, just because. Sebastian, I believe we only have one guest that's perfectly confirmed, hopefully, possibly, for next week. And who is that guest? Uh, yeah, that guest would be Shimrit Lee, who is going to be on to talk about her book "Decolonize Museums," which is fascinating. And from that, when you read that book, when you hear that interview, from that point on, you will never be able to watch an Indiana Jones movie again. So now you'll have a really good reason not to do so. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash. This is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host. Live streaming host, podcast host Chuck Mertz, there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's
3: stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller, uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down.